There's so much health advice out there, lots of different voices and opinions, but who can you trust? Trust the experts, the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them tough, intimate health questions so you get the answers you need. This is the Health Essentials Podcast, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to replace the advice of your own physician. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Health Essentials Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Zaleski, and today we're discussing sleep studies with sleep medicine specialist, Dr. Nancy Fulvery, director of Cleveland Clinic Sleep Disorder Center. The CDC estimates that 70 million Americans live with chronic sleep problems. These can include sleep disorders such as sleep apnea, narcolepsy, insomnia, or parasomnias, a term for many conditions that disrupt your sleep. Sleep disorders can have a significant impact on your daily life and affect your career and relationships. One way to figure out what's going on and determine the best next steps in treatment is by having a sleep study. Dr. Fuldry is here to discuss what it's like having a sleep study, how you know you need one, and what the results of these studies can tell you. Dr. Fuldry, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's, it's my pleasure. So I'd like to start off by having you tell us a little bit about your work here at Cleveland Clinic. What kind of research and clinical work do you do? Well, I'm a neurologist in the Neurological Institute, and I lead the sleep medicine program. Uh, and the sleep medicine program is a, a large, diverse program. Uh, we treat patients with a variety of sleep disorders. Uh, I also practice epilepsy medicine. And one of my interests is in the intersection between sleep disorders, sleep medicine, and other neurological uh, conditions. So I do some research on relationships between sleep and epilepsy, uh, but our team is also brought in that to other neurological conditions. Uh, and uh, we also treat common uh, sleep disorders like insomnia and sleep apnea. And our research team uh, here in the Sleep Disorder Center is uh, very extensively involved in interactions between sleep disorders and uh, cardiovascular health, metabolic health, as well as brain health. Boy, that's another podcast right there <laughs> for us to talk about. Fascinating. <laughs> So today, though, we're going to be talking about sleep studies, which obviously with all of that work, you're very familiar with. So broadly, first off, explain what a sleep study is and what are some common reasons someone might have one done? Yeah. So historically, sleep studies have been performed in sleep laboratories. And of course, we still do sleep studies in sleep laboratories, all but one of the sleep laboratories in our system here are in hotels. Uh, which uh, we've moved to over many years and which patients really enjoy. They're, they're nicer environments than sleeping in the uh, first generation of sleep labs, which were labs with, you know, equipment all over the place and wires hanging out and, you know, people sleeping on hospital beds or gurneys. Uh, so we've moved toward uh, more pleasant environments so that we can optimize um, the a great experience uh, and um, ensure that people sleep actually during sleep studies. Uh, so the overnight sleep study in a sleep laboratory is attended by a sleep technologist, which means that uh, behind your room in another room, which is called the control room, a technologist is monitoring the patient, uh, monitoring the signals, the brain waves, 
the breathing patterns, the oxygen, the carbon dioxide, the body movements, uh, as well as the video uh, of patients sleeping so that the technologist can understand what's going on and maybe, maybe um, modify the test uh, in order to optimize uh, the, the night. And so a perfect example of that, which happens very often, is that people come into the sleep laboratory for sleep apnea, uh, which is a breathing disturbance in sleep that is highly prevalent. Uh, and we diagnose the sleep apnea within a couple of hours, which allows the technologist to, to um, put the patient on a CPAP machine or a positive airway pressure device, uh, which is a therapeutic test. Uh, so sometimes we can do a diagnostic test and a therapeutic test in the same evening. Um, I think it's important to add a couple more things. Uh, one is that in our system, uh, we also see patients with many other kinds of sleep disorders coming to the sleep laboratory, sleep-related movement disorders, sleep-related seizures. Uh, and this requires that we tailor the test to the individual needs of the patient or the clinical question. And so every test that we do in our sleep labs is reviewed before the patient arrives at our sleep lab so that we can make sure we've tailored it. And that may mean adding wires to the head, more EEG, adding wires to the muscles so that we can record muscle activity appropriately, adding a specific type of carbon dioxide monitor so that we can make sure that the breathing disturbance isn't more complicated than obstructive sleep apnea. So that's the typical laboratory study. The other is the home sleep apnea test. And so this came out uh, several years ago, uh, we've done home sleep apnea tests now for probably about a decade at the Cleveland Clinic. And this is a very specific abbreviated test done in the home for one reason, and it's to confirm the diagnosis of sleep apnea when the clinical presentation suggests a high probability of sleep apnea. So it's not for more complicated sleep disorders. It's not going to very precisely estimate the amount of sleep apnea, it's just gonna confirm significant sleep apnea or not. Um, and, and, and I think that's an important point because many people will want to come, um, will want to do their test in their home, uh, but there are uh, reasons why that's not the optimal test in many cases. Wow, that's just all, that's so fascinating. And it's amazing how technology has, you know, evolved too, that you can do that. You know, it's a lot more complex, I would imagine. Yes, and it requires really that we think about every test, and, and it's really the responsibility of the of the physician who's ordering the test, but also the sleep laboratory. So we take that um, uh, seriously. We want patients to have the right test, and that may be the home test or it may be the in-lab test, uh, but we want to get the right test that will answer the clinical question best for that individual patient. So you mentioned sleep apnea and then some other sleep disorders is, you know, a couple of the things that, you know, sleep studies are for. What other conditions can these help diagnose? Uh, many patients have sleep-related movement disorders or parasomnias. So parasomnias are abnormal ex experiences, behaviors, motor activity uh, associated with sleep. And so the classic one that we record increasingly often is for REM sleep behavior disorder. This is a parasomnia where uh, it typically happens in older individuals, men more than women, and the presence of REM behavior disorder is actually a precursor to neurodegenerative conditions. And so this is uh, becoming increasingly important to recognize. When we see people with REM behavior disorder, they have a si significant chance of experiencing symptoms of, for example, Parkinson's disease years later. Uh, and so this requires that we add 
uh, EMG, which are sensors that capture muscle activity of the upper extremities, a particular muscle in the upper extremities that is not typically recorded in a standard sleep study so that we can measure changes in muscle activity during REM sleep. So normally we're, we're paralyzed in REM sleep. And, and that's a protective function, you know, because we, dr we can dream very vividly in REM sleep. And if we all had muscle activity, we could be kicking and punching and acting out our dreams. Uh, the patient with REM behavior disorder uh, has a lesion, so to speak, in a specific part of the brain that allows them to move and act out dreams, uh, which can cause both um, injuries to themselves as well as injuries to bed partners. And so this is one example of a more advanced kind of sleep study uh, that we would that would require some tailoring um, and uh, in the sleep laboratory. Wow. So, you know, when someone is having a sleep study, obviously getting a diagnosis, and as you mentioned, you know, trying to see, you know, maybe with a CPAP machine, which settings work then, are, what are some other goals or aims of a sleep study? Are those kind of the only two things? It's a diagnosis and then, you know, making sure that the treatment might be working? Uh, well, those are two, two things for obstructive sleep apnea. Many people with obstructive sleep apnea have other sleep disorders, though. So we're looking for abnormal uh, motor activity that might suggest that they may also have um, a comorbid sleep disorder. Uh, we're looking for position changes and state changes uh, that would perhaps identify a different kind of therapy for sleep apnea. So, for example, some people will have very simple sleep apnea, but it's only in REM sleep or it's only on their, when they're sleeping on their back as opposed to their side. Uh, so we may be able to think about alternative therapies rather than a CPAP machine uh, for those patients. Uh, we also will bring patients into the sleep lab to measure the effect of therapies, including oral appliances that are manufactured by a dentist that advance the lower jaw forward, creating space in the back of the throat. And this is, this is a nice alternative for many patients with mild to maybe moderate sleep apnea. And then our team is in, is also involved in Inspire Therapy, which is in hypoglossal nerve stimulation, which is a stimulator that's placed in the chest and stimulates a nerve called the hypoglossal nerve, which is the 12th cranial nerve that expands the airway in sleep to treat sleep apnea as well. And we also will um, treat patients or diagnose patients who have hypersomnia conditions. So these are very different, a completely different category than obstructive sleep apnea. These are people with, with sleep-wake dysfunction. They have difficulty staying awake during the day. Uh, these include patients with narcolepsy and other forms of hypersomnia, and they require an overnight sleep study followed by a daytime nap test. So some patients are in our sleep lab for maybe 18, 20, 22 hours to get their full complement of testing um, to make a diagnosis. Wow. That's, that's unbelievable. And it's, it's nice to know that there are so many options though, that, you know, if you're, if something is going on, you know, chances are there's something that there's a test for you or something that can be tailored to what's going on. That's great. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we've created a sleep app uh, recently as well. The second version just uh, went live on the app store uh, last week. Uh, and this is a screening app. So anyone with an iPhone can download this and can screen themselves for like four common sleep disorders, including sleep apnea. And you can get a probability score, like what's your probability of having significant sleep apnea? And we're using that increasingly to help people um, sort of understand uh, their own risk for sleep disorders 
and be able to make their own decisions about whether they think uh, sleep testing is right for them. Well, that's great because that actually goes into right into my next questions are, you know, what are some specific signs or symptoms you might be experiencing that you think, uh, you know, maybe a sleep study might be helpful? Yeah. So, so there are many different sleep disorders in six broad categories. Uh, they include insomnia conditions, uh, hypersomnias that I just mentioned, the sleep disordered breathing, which is sleep apnea, parasomnias, uh, circadian rhythm disorders and movement disorders in sleep. And really each of these are gonna present very differently. Um, and so, but most often people will recognize that their sleep quality is poor. They have difficulty either falling asleep, staying asleep, and they don't feel refreshed after a night of sleep. And so we begin there with figuring out if it's a problem of uh, sleep quantity or quality uh, and or if it's a problem of wakefulness uh, during the day and then ask more questions to figure out which direction uh, we're going in. Uh, snoring is a common symptom of sleep apnea, as is tiredness and daytime sleepiness. Um, it's sometimes very useful to have a bed partner also contributing to the history, uh, because many people with common disorders like sleep apnea do not are not aware that they stop breathing when they sleep, or that they're pausing or making snoring or snorting sounds really to open up their airway again after their airway closes on them. And so oftentimes for obstructive sleep apnea, the bed partner's history is more valuable than the patient's history. Uh, the opposite is probably true for people with narcolepsy because people with narcolepsy and other hypersomnia conditions can have very elaborate dreams, uh, very unusual things happen to them as they're going in and out of sleep, like feeling paralyzed or feeling like they're hallucinating or acting out dreams. And those are things almost always that are very personal to the patient. Uh, and it requires a more detailed uh, sleep history from the patient in order to identify uh, factors that might be suggestive of a condition like narcolepsy. Wow. Well, and that's, uh, you know, and that the, there's so many different you know, signs and symptoms here, you know, and so how can you tell like something like snoring? Yeah, because snoring is very common then. When does someone realize, oh, geez, this is rising to the level of being a health concern? Yeah. So many people snore and uh, it's not always easy to know when we're seeing patients in the clinic who might just be a snorer and who might have sleep apnea because snoring is like the, the far minimal end of the spectrum of sleep disordered breathing. And again, the clinical history is not always uh, directing us perfectly. And so most people who come to the sleep center who snore end up having other symptoms too. Like they're gasping themselves awake at night and it's a sign of sleep apnea. Their bed partner may report something um, like a snoring or gasping or a lot of sounds or pausing in sleep. Uh, and they may not feel refreshed during the day. Uh, and so those patients would certainly qualify for having a sleep study to make sure they don't have sleep apnea. And if we've ruled out sleep apnea, uh, sometimes snoring can be reduced or eliminated with weight loss, with reducing alcohol. You know, alcohol at nighttime is a central nervous system depressant, so it can make the airway more floppy. And really snoring is caused by the muscles that support the upper airway getting weak and getting floppy at night. Um, and so sometimes it's, it's as simple as sleeping on your side instead of your back, losing a few pounds, and maybe cutting back on alcohol in the evening. Uh, but people who talk about loud snoring, loud disruptive snoring, 
are more likely to have sleep apnea. So those folks should definitely have sleep studies. Uh, and if they don't have sleep apnea, we will often refer them to our sleep medicine board certified ear, nose and throat surgeon to do an upper airway examination, identify the site of the airway collapsibility and assess whether or not there may be a surgical procedure uh, that will alleviate the snoring or potentially use an oral appliance that is manufactured by a dentist that can stabilize the upper airway and reduce snoring. And, and that's so interesting because I think a lot of people, you know, that if if snoring does mean you have sleep apnea, you know, you might not think that it's kind of on a continuum. You know, you might think, oh, this is happening to me. This is always, you know, this is always severe, you know, obviously CPAP machine. But something like sleep apnea, it, you know, just from you explaining this, there's so many different solutions. That's so interesting. Uh, you know, so how do you know when sleep apnea is you know, mild, moderate, severe? And when is that a problem, too? Yes. So the sleep study helps us determine that. So on an overnight polysomnogram or on a home sleep apnea test, we will quantify the number of times we record either an apnea, which is a complete cessation of breathing for at least 10 seconds, or what we call a hypopnea, which is a partial airway obstruction. We quantify these, add the number up by the sleep hour, and we develop and we calculate an index, uh, which we call the apnea hypopnea index. This is the number of times of significant collapsibility of the upper airway per hour of sleep. The diagnosis of sleep apnea is made when that number is five or greater. Mild is five to 15, moderate 15 to 30, and severe 30 and plus. And we know from the literature over decades uh, that people with untreated sleep apnea who are in that moderate or severe range have a much more increased risk of cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke, uh, heart failure, as well as metabolic disorders like obesity and diabetes, and now cognitive impairment and even progression to Alzheimer's disease. So when people have mild sleep apnea and they have very few symptoms, we have the luxury of sort of addressing the symptom and maybe not worrying about those adverse consequences of untreated sleep apnea. But when people are in that 15 and higher range, we really want to make sure that whatever treatment we choose is going to be very highly effective. And for many people, that is a positive airway pressure machine, at least to start. And that, I mean, and that just speaks to how important it is to have any sleep di- sleep disorders looked at and diagnosed, or if you suspect you have one, to get that checked out. Right, right. And the home sleep apnea test, while it's convenient and expensive, it also will underestimate the severity of obstructive sleep apnea. So again, it's important that we're choosing the right test for the right clinical question. Uh, if there is a concern about measuring the severity of sleep apnea, we may not be able to fully answer that question with a home test and we may prefer an in-lab test. And that, you know, and that makes sense. You know, I think with some other tests, you know, like for tests for, you know, colorectal cancer, you know, you have at-home tests, which are good to a certain point, but you want to get a colonoscopy to really dig into what's kind of going on. That's right. Exactly. Well, you know, let's talk about some of those types of sleep studies then, you know, what they're kind of, you know, how does a doctor determine which one is best for you? So the home sleep apnea test is a test to confirm the presence of what we call high probability obstructive sleep apnea. So a patient who snores, is tired during the day, has witnessed apneas, meaning breathing pauses that maybe a bed partner recognizes. Those are the top three symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. And if that patient does not also have 
a suspicion for other sleep disorders that would require an in-lab test or significant heart disease or significant lung disease, then that might be the perfect patient to have a home sleep apnea test. That patient sounds like they have sleep apnea and we wanna confirm it and start treating it. Uh, on the other hand, if that patient has significant um, lung disease or heart failure or a neurological condition and maybe has snoring, but we're not so sure how sleepy they are, uh, that patient would be more appropriate for an in-lab test so that we can measure things with more precision and measure other biological signals that are not included in the home sleep apnea test. That makes sense. What are these tests like then? You know, what can people, what can people expect with a, a at-home test for sleep apnea? So our home tests generally are delivered to the patient. Uh, we've, we've made it easier so that we deliver the test on the date that the patient agrees to have the test. And it comes in a sterile kit and it comes with instructions and a telephone number to reach out to one of our uh, team members if uh, there's a challenge. And the patient basically hooks up four sensors. They hook up a nasal prong, I mean, a nasal prong, which goes here um, to measure airflow. And then the uh, oximetry, which is the, which is the fingertip probe uh, to measure oxygen. And then there's a belt around the chest and a belt around the abdomen that measures breathing. And that's connected to the recorder. Uh, and then they turn it on, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, take it off and ship it back to us. Uh, so the home sleep test uh, works very well. There is a failure rate, maybe seven or 8% of the time the device won't work. The patient may forget to turn it on. A critical sensor might not have been placed appropriately. And in those situations, we assess whether it's reasonable to, to send the device back to the patient and try again, or have the patient come for an in-lab study. The in-lab studies um, are scheduled at nighttime, uh, typically 8, 8.30, uh, 9 p.m., depending on the typical bedtime of the patient. And the patient will be greeted by a technologist, will be brought to uh, their sleep room, which is, which is their private room for the night, uh, and will be hooked up to a number of uh, sensors, uh, typically over the head to record brain waves, again at the nose and the airway to record um, airflow, um, the belts for breathing, sensors on the arms, legs, and under the chin and around the eyes to measure eye movements and body movements, which are important to differentiate sleep stages. Uh, so we're looking to record various sleep stages and non-REM sleep as well as REM sleep, and then record breathing and motor activity during each of those stages so that we can identify various presentations of sleep disorders. And then patients generally go home in the morning. Um, if they wake up by six in the morning, they can be unhooked and uh, go home. Sometimes we tailor the test to allow the patient to sleep longer, knowing that they have trouble falling asleep and usually sleep, sleep till eight or nine in the morning. So we're able to tailor that to make sure that we record the time of sleep that is really most typical for the patient. So is that pretty much, is that the, the, the diagnostic or kind of routine overnight sleep study? Is that what people, because I feel like that's what most people have. Is that correct to say? Yes. Yes. That, that's the typical test for patients, much, much less often for, for patients who we suspect have a sleep-wake disorder that's characterized more by profound daytime sleepiness, then we would do that test and it would be followed by a multiple sleep latency test where the patient would have many of those nighttime sensors removed. We're finished recording breathing, uh, but we keep some of the wires on the head and the eye leads and the chin lead. 
and we invite the patient to take a nap at two hour intervals, five times during the day. And we measure how easy it is for them to fall asleep and if they fall into REM sleep. And that's the test that identifies narcolepsy and some of the other disorders that are characterized more by daytime sleepiness rather than breathing disorders when they sleep at night. Now, does that test have a specific name? That daytime test is called a multiple sleep latency test. And when we bring patients in for that more comprehensive test, the overnight polysomnogram, which is a sleep study, followed by the multiple sleep latency test, in our lab, we will also measure actigraphy for a week or two before they come in the test. So actigraphy is like a motion sensor watch, and that's delivered to the patient by our sleep lab. And they wear it for a week or two so that we can measure sleep and wake patterns over a broader period of time, because sometimes a single night in the lab is not telling the whole story. And so for certain diagnoses, like people who have circadian rhythm disorders, people who have significant insomnia, and the hypersomnia disorders, we really need to see what the patient's sleep-wake patterns are over a longer period of time, and consider that when we're interpreting the overnight sleep study. So, you know, you get a sense that we really try to understand what the specific question is or questions for a given patient and really tailor the experience to answer that specific question. Wow. So, you know, how I think there's another test also called the maintenance of wakefulness test. Is that similar to the multiple sleep latency test or is that a, a kind of a separate thing? It's very similar. Only instead of asking the patient to try to take a nap, we ask them in a very dim, comfortable lab environment, reclined, to try to stay awake. So here we're measuring one's ability to maintain wakefulness in a rather sleep-conducive environment. This is not a diagnostic test. It's a test that helps us assess how someone's able to stay awake, typically under the influence of wake-promoting medications. So for example, the patient with narcolepsy, we may do an a sleep study, the overnight sleep study in an MSLT and make a diagnosis and then start to treat the patient with wake promoting medications to help them function better during the day. And sometimes it's hard to know how well they're doing on their those medications or we feel we've tried many medications or maybe a high dose of a medication, but the symptoms persist. And that's a situation where we may order a maintenance of wakefulness test to really objectify that patient's daytime sleepiness. Wow. Now, when, when people are looking at, because I know I think there's another uh, positive airway pressure titration study. Now, is that to get like fitted for a CPAP test or what is what is that like? So that's an overnight sleep study where we're aiming to use positive airway pressure the whole night and change pressures, change the mode of therapy in order to alleviate the sleep disordered breathing, which is sleep apnea. It may also be a more complicated form of sleep disordered breathing where a patient may hypoventilate. They're not breathing efficiently. And so we may use carbon dioxide and oxygen levels uh, and a PAP machine to try to um, optimize breathing, uh, both from the standpoint of airway collapse as well as from the standpoint of ventilation. And so typically we begin with a CPAP, which is continuous positive airway pressure where air is flowing to maintain the patency of the upper airway when we inhale and exhale, or maybe a bi-level PAP machine 
where there are two settings, an inspiratory setting, which is higher, and an expiratory setting, which is lower, in order to more efficiently breathe, maybe more comfortably breathe, as well as treat some of these hypoventilation disorders. And then yet there's another more advanced uh, type of positive airway pressure, which we call uh, ASV, that also can be titrated in the sleep laboratory. Uh, so when we do a PAP titration study, it may be one or all of those modes. We may start with a simple mode and recognize that the patient's not tolerating it, move to bi-level or even move to ASV all in one night with the hope that at the end of that night, we're going to know what kind of machine and what pressure settings that patient needs so that we can order the right kind of machine for the patient's breathing disorder. Wow. That's just unbelievable, kind of the range and, and you know, like you kind of mentioned up front, just how much can be tailored to each individual person and what can actually be measured. That's just incredible. Yeah. And I think it's important for the patient also and the, and the referring provider to know your sleep lab. So referring providers who are not sleep specialists may not be as well um, trained in knowing all these intricacies. So, um, so I encourage non-sleep experts, if you're referring pa patients to a sleep laboratory, get to know the doctors who are working in that sleep laboratory and get to know uh, how the, the, the um, variability of tests that they ordered so that you can participate in really tailoring the test uh, for your patients. Uh, because all tests are not alike. Uh, the in-lab test for a sleep apnea patient may be very similar from one lab to the other. But if you're referring your patients for more complex problems, it's very important that the lab knows the reason for you referring the patient. Awesome. So if someone is going to get a, get a sleep study done then, what do they need to know in terms of, you know, like what should you wear? You know, what do you need to like pack for something if it's an overnight or a 24 hour test? Yes, so our lab does provide instructions for patients. Um, if patients are staying for like almost a full day, like for narcolepsy or for hypersomnia, uh, then it's important to uh, come prepared and know that you're going to be in the lab um, till maybe five o'clock the next day. Uh, one of the things that can really invalidate that daytime test is just not knowing what you're getting into and thinking, I'm probably going to leave at three o'clock. I've got to pick up my child from school, but oh no, this test is not going to end till five o'clock. That, that anxiety alone probably will invalidate that test. Um, we encourage people to bring snacks. Uh, we um, advise people to always bring their medications. Our sleep labs are not generally in hospitals where nurses provide medications. So it's very important that you take the medications you normally would take at bedtime and during the day, unless if advised otherwise by your doctor or the sleep laboratory. It's important to wear something comfortable, but also be aware that you're going to have sensors placed under your chest and I mean on your chest and under your pajamas. And so it's important to wear something that you're going to sleep in that's going to be um, allow you to move around and allow the technologist to place sensors in the in the correct places. Uh, we also will advise people to not put a lot of hair product in their hair because they're going to have sensors applied to their scalp and patients who have uh, hair pieces uh, and um, acrylic nails. We're not going to be able to record the oxygen level through an acrylic nail very well. We're not going to be able to uh, preserve um, certain types of hairstyles. Uh, with the amount of uh, paste and sensors that are going to be in your in your hair. 
Um, and then beyond that, we really encourage people to try to make themselves comfortable. Some people bring their own uh, pillow. That's perfectly fine. Some people bring um, things to do that they know will help them fall asleep at night. You know, even their electronics and and or a book to read. Uh, but we also make sure that people are turning electronics off, you know, well before lights out uh, so that electronics don't interfere with the quality of the sleep study. So you mentioned, you know, sensors and belts as well. You know, is there any other equipment or things that people can expect, um, you know, during a sleep study? You know, are there ever face masks used and things like that? What else can people expect? Yeah. So if you're having, if, if you're coming for a sleep apnea diagnosis and it turns out that you have significant sleep apnea, our laboratories will um, introduce the most common treatment, which is, which is positive airway pressure or continuous positive airway pressure, which is CPAP. And that's delivered through some type of interface, either with nasal prongs that go fit right into your nostrils or a nasal mask that covers your nose, or even if you're a mouth breather, a full face mask that covers your nose and your mouth. Uh, and so that can be a little bit difficult to get acclimated to. And so before the sleep study, while patients are waiting for lights out, we will invite them to watch a video so that they can see what can happen during the sleep study if, they, if we do find that they have significant sleep apnea. When that does happen, it's actually a, a, mostly a very good experience because a technologist who has a variety of those kinds of masks or interfaces can fit one that is maybe the most comfortable, the right size, and work with you, work with the patient to um, get them to understand the reason for the therapy and make sure there's no leaking, make sure that um, they're comfortable, uh, and provide enough education so that after that test, the patient's much more likely to be recept receptive to the therapy and succeed with the therapy. Oh, wow. That's great. And that's, you know, and just having that even kind of in place too, I would imagine would also kind of reduce anxiety for people because, geez, I imagine that you you run into a lot of people who are just, you know, they don't know what to expect. And that can be very, you know, they, they can get very worked up this, you know, so what else do you kind of do for people who might be anxious or worried about having a sleep test? Well, we um, do a lot of education ahead of time. So when a test is ordered, there's a, a series of educational materials that are made available to the patient. Uh, the technologists are excellent at alleviating stress. And um, we, we do our technologists are really great at this for children. I mean, we do sleep studies in people of all ages. Uh, and we have, we have um, toys and gadgets and things uh, for children to get a sense of, you know, what this sensor feels like and, um, and uh, make them feel part of the experience when they're getting, when they're getting uh, hooked up. None of these sensors are painful in any way. Um, we don't use strong glue. We use paste uh, that is easy to remove the, sen the sensors the next day. Um, children and, you know, people can kind of touch the sensors before the study is uh, on. Um, we let them know that they can get up anytime during the night. All they've got to do is, you know, push for their technologist, push the button, and we'll unhook them from the whole device so that they can go into the bathroom and sit on the side of the bed. Uh, so there are many things that we can do in the lab. We've got um, a recliner in most of the rooms so that if a person is more used to sleeping in a recliner rather than a bed or just needs to move around, we can make that happen as well. 
the technologists are experts in making it the most sleep conducive environment because we know we need to capture several hours of sleep to make that test worthwhile. worthwhile. And so we do what we can. We can extend uh, this, the recording period um, and uh, we can allow the patient to take a break if, if needed um, and encourage them to try again so that we can make the most of that, that nighttime study. That's great. And that's, you know, and that, that's, I think, good to know, because I think a lot of people also might think, oh, if I'm getting a sleep study, I have to be in bed all night. You know, it's, it's good to know that, hey, if you have to go to the bathroom or, you know, maybe you're having a little bit of anxiety, you can take a little bit of a break. I think that's really good to know. Yes. And we do overnight sleep studies sometimes during the day for, sl- for shift workers. So people who are awake at night and normally sleep during the day, we want to record them generally when they're in their regular rhythm. And so we also will have people coming for an overnight eight hour study to our lab at seven or eight in the morning for a nighttime sleep study. So there's a lot of tailoring that we can do in order to match what we're going to record with the patient's usual sleep times and their usual environment. What else then do you wish that, uh, you know, do you want people to know before having a sleep study then? And is there anything that people always discover that, you know, that maybe they wish they knew in advance before having a sleep study? Well, I think that for, for most people, they, um, they, they do, they do generally know what they're getting into, but unless, until you've done it, I think, I think it's just a brand new experience. Uh, So patients have a lot of anxiety about being monitored by the technologist uh, patients are in clean rooms with sterile equipment. The, the equipment we use on, on patients and the masks we use have never been used by another patient. Uh, everything is brand new. Uh, the technologists follow um, all kinds of uh, protocols to make sure that um, the equipment is, is sterile and their interactions you know, are, are with gloves and so patients can feel uh, comfortable. Of course, we're masking. Uh, and we've had very few instances through the entire COVID pandemic of any kinds of COVID problems in our sleep lab. That's a question that still comes up because I think people are still staying away from medical procedures that may not be viewed as urgent uh, because of concerns about the pandemic. Uh, we've had very few um, challenges uh, with uh, people being sick in our sleep laboratories. And so I think people can rest assured that our laboratories are clean, all the equipment is fresh and new, uh, and our t- technologists are very well trained in making sure that the procedures are done uh, perfectly uh, appropriately through protocols and um, that we also at the same time try to make people feel comfortable. And so they should feel comfortable bringing whatever they need to bring to make their experience as close to home as it would be. Awesome. That's great. So after you have a sleep study then, um, you know, how long does it take for you to get results? So it takes a couple of days to process the data. Uh, every single 30 second time frame of an overnight sleep study, which may go on for six, seven, eight, even nine hours needs to be scored. And so we have our nighttime technologists do some of that work. We have daytime technologists who process the studies, and then the physician will read the study. And so generally, we recommend that patients go back to their referring provider no sooner than a week after the test to make sure that the study is, has been finalized and it's available for 
uh, the physician to share the results. Wow. So, you know, what, what do the results look like then? Like what sorts of measurements and things, you know, do people kind of receive? So the overnight study uh, is is a very detailed report. And actually our report is just the summary of the whole night. There are thousands of variables that can be calculated from an overnight sleep study, literally thousands of them. What we do is we summarize sleep architecture. So this is the time someone took to fall asleep, the number of times they woke up, the time they woke up in the morning, the amount of REM sleep, the amount of non-REM sleep, stages one, two, and three, and the amount of wake time. Then we'll summarize the respiratory variables. So how many times did the patient stop breathing, have a partial airway collapse? How low does the oxygen level go? How many times did the oxygen level drop? How high did the carbon dioxide level go? And then we'll go into summarizing body movements. How many periodic limb movements occurred? Were these during sleep? Were these during wakefulness? Uh, what was the average heart rate? How low did the heart rate go? Were there any arrhythmias associated with the respiratory events? And then we'll do a summary in, in the impression and categorize the sleep disordered breathing. Is it mild, moderate, or severe? Uh, is there, uh, are there leg movements or other body movements uh, that are significant? Was the study likely to be valid in terms of having captured the right kind of sleep? Did we capture REM sleep? Did we capture people sleeping in the supine position? And then finally, what we'll do is we'll look at the patient history, either in their medical record or from the questionnaire that the patient completed on the night that they came into the lab. So we have the patients complete a sleep and wake um, history, basically. And we use that information to make sure that we're interpreting the study in the context of the reason why the patient came for the test. And then lastly, the patient does an after study or morning after questionnaire. And here they can rate for us. How close was this to normal? Did I sleep pretty much like I normally do? And if not, how different was it from normal? And that's important too, because sometimes the first experience in the sleep lab is just one of, I know I didn't sleep as well. I know we didn't capture the information that we expected to. And that's important to know what the per patient's perception is. If it matches the perception of the physician reading the study, that may be somebody who does need to come for a second study. We call that first night effect. The variations in sleep quality uh, that lead to a potential for underestimation of a sleep disorder. And that's, you know, and that was actually I mean, one of my questions is I would imagine, you know, that it's sometimes if you don't get the results or, you know, the, the, the results maybe don't line up with what you think the first time, that's totally normal if you might have to come back. Absolutely. And sometimes a referring provider who is not necessarily a sleep medicine board certified uh, practitioner will refer patients to, for a sleep medicine consultation. Uh, sometimes the initial reason for the test might be sleep apnea, but in fact, the patient might have a different sleep disorder. And sometimes people with sleep apnea also have other sleep disorders. And so it can get a little bit more complicated than, uh, than a simple question about uh, sleep apnea. So in general, you know, assuming all goes well and, you know, you sleep okay, then, you know, how accurate are sleep studies? If the patient slept well and feels that the study was representative of their typical night of sleep, 
A sleep study is going to be very accurate in identifying sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea. The sleep study may vary from night to night in terms of the severity of sleep apnea. So for example, if we were to do two nights of sleep recording in the sleep laboratory, we might find severe sleep apnea one night, moderate sleep apnea the next night, or on the other extreme. We might find that the patient is normal on the first night, but they meet criteria for mild sleep apnea the second night. So there is some night-to-night -night variability, and that's important to recognize if we get a result that surprises us uh, or is a negative study when we really have a high index of suspicion, and we recommend that that patient come back for another study. When it comes to other sleep disorders, uh, there are like REM behavior disorder, like periodic limb movements, like narcolepsy. It's really important that the patient is well prepared for those studies, that they're not taking medications that are going to suppress or mask findings we're looking for. Uh, so very often patients with hypersomnia disorders or even REM behavior disorder um, really should have medications that may mask findings that we're looking for on the test um, tapered or discontinued before the study. And for that to happen, sometimes it's best to have them come to the sleep disorders clinic and see the sleep disorders experts so that we can make sure that we're identifying the medicines that really should be discontinued. And we're suggesting that those medicines be discontinued in a safe manner in collaboration with the physicians who prescribe those medications. So we're really prepping for a high quality valid test in advance. Wow. So after someone gets the results then, what are the next steps? So the next steps are to review those results uh, with your provider and it really depends on what the diagnosis is. So for sleep apnea in the moderate to severe range, we very often, almost always, try positive airway pressure first. This is a therapy that's been out for decades. It's a very effective therapy. Full adherence to this kind of therapy and people who are high risk for cardiovascular consequences or brain consequences are very likely to have a reduction in those risks if they can adhere to therapy and the therapy is effective. For people with milder range sleep apnea, it really depends on the severity of symptoms. Some patients may be uh, appropriate to try positive airway pressure therapy. Uh, other patients, sometimes I'll refer them to a dentist who is uh, certified in, in making oral appliances for sleep apnea and get the opinion of the dentist. Sometimes I'll refer them to our ear, nose, and throat uh, surgeon to get an airway exam and think about alternatives if the patient's not really interested in positive airway pressure. Sometimes it's a matter of weight loss, reducing alcohol, sleeping on your side with a body position pillow that can kind of keep you from sleeping on your back. Um, and then for patients with other disorders, it's really about what disorder it is. Uh, there are medications to treat all the sleep disorders. Uh, most are based on FDA approval. Uh, some conditions like the parasomnias, and these include people who walk in their sleep and eat in their sleep. Uh, there are no FDA approved drugs, uh, but we have some understanding of the effects of some medications that can improve sleep quality. And so we use the literature as well as the evidence-based uh, literature from clinical trials to identify the most appropriate medication to begin with. Of course, with insomnia, so insomnia patients often don't end up in the sleep laboratory. 
Insomnia is a sleep disorder that's diagnosed clinically. There's no need for a sleep disorder if a patient has insomnia and does not have a high risk for another sleep disorder. Uh, and so those patients can be identified clinically and we recommend cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. We've got a behavioral sleep medicine team. These are expert psychologists who are, who are uh, certified in the care of insomnia patients and they do various types of therapy to reduce insomnia. Often we do this without the need for sleep medications. And this kind of therapy is more effective long-term than even using sedative hypnotics uh, for the treatment of insomnia. Wow. I feel like a lot of people might not know that then. That's so very interesting. Yes. Many people with insomnia uh, struggle. I mean, 30% of our adult population has some degree of insomnia. And we're lucky at the Cleveland Clinic to have behavioral sleep medicine experts who have created uh, both a computerized program so that you can do this in your own home. That's called Go to Sleep. It can be found on the Wellness Institute of the Cleveland Clinic's website. And so, so we've, we're trying to create things where people can do some self-help on their own. Uh, but we've also got this group of behavioral sleep medicine uh, experts who can coach patients through the challenges of um, managing insomnia as well, either individually or in a group setting. Wow. This, this has been an amazing conversation and extremely comprehensive. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Are there any other points you want to make? I think I just like to reinforce how common sleep disorders are. Sleep apnea affects, you know, 25% of people, more men than women before menopause. But after menopause, women are equally at risk and they have a lag to diagnosis because they don't present with all the common symptoms. Um, we probably are missing a lot of narcolepsy and hypersomnia uh, because there's not enough awareness in the general public about these conditions. So if you've struggled for more than three months with difficulty with sleep quality or quantity or difficulty staying awake during the day, it's probably time to go uh, see your doctor and the sleep medicine experts available at the Cleveland Clinic uh, likely will be able to make a diagnosis and start you on therapy. Wow. Dr. Fulvery, thank you so much for being here today. Like I said, this has been a really great conversation. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Interested in scheduling a sleep study or seeing a sleep specialist? Call Cleveland Clinic Sleep Disorder Center at 216-636-5860 or visit clevelandclinic.org slash sleep. Thank you for listening to Health Essentials, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic and Cleveland Clinic Children's. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit clevelandclinic.org slash HEPodcast. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest health tips, news, and information.